I invite you to turn your Bibles now to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first, his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to pick up in verse 20 and reading down through verse 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. I encourage you to use the Pew Bibles. What an amazing opportunity to hear the very words of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20, this is God's Word. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our, our Lord. I die every day. What do, I gain if, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Well, would God add his blessing to the reading of his word as we have received it now? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we have heard this sobering word as we have sung and praised with our hallelujahs even to your great name we do come and and ask that you would receive our prayers that you would receive our devotion and that you would guide us lord even as we are guided by your word even as we will hear from in a moment but in as we do pray as we gather here lord we pray that your hand would be upon this church we pray for those who are weak and weary, weakened by illness, wearied by strife, 
worn down by the calamities of this age, oh Lord, we pray that you would give them comfort today. We pray for the witness of your church, even the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that goes out from this church and from other churches. We pray our witness would continue in faithfulness. We also thank you for the many good churches who are testifying even to your grace and your gospel, even your truth. We pray for First Baptist in Calgary, Pastor Norm Dirksen and Pastor Sean Martins. We pray for them as they're facing opposition, opposition from the community and the media, even as they are seeking to state plainly what you have revealed naturally to all people, but also especially in your word, that you have created mankind in your own image, male and female, you have created them. Those simple truths these brothers are proclaiming are under attack, and so we pray that you would protect First Baptist Church this morning even. Lord, we know that we are arrayed against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We pray that you would give us courage, a gospel-grounded courage to be able to speak the truth in love. And that you would help us with the meekness of Jesus Christ to obey God rather than men as is required. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to seek your face. We pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning by lifting our eyes above the cares and concerns of our society above even the cares and concerns of convoys and protests. Lord, we pray for peace in this land, but we ask, Lord, that our peace would not be found merely in political maneuverings, but that we would find peace with you, that we would find peace in Jesus Christ, even the blood of his cross. So help us now to learn of the glories that await those who put their hope in Christ alone. Help us, give us eyes to see, even eyes of faith. We ask that you would do this miracle amongst us by your Spirit, for only you can do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an unignorable fact that every human being must account for, and it is that right now, there is no longer only one man who determines your destiny. Adam no longer necessarily governs us to the grave. I say necessarily because there is another man. There is another man. In fact, he is the last man, the last Adam. And although our passage doesn't mention that specific phrase, the last Adam, yet, it does introduce that idea here, that Jesus Christ is the last Adam. And what is most important is our solidarity with the one or the other. 
Who do we belong to? And that's a question you can ask yourself even this morning. Who do you belong to? Do you belong to Adam along with all of mankind? Do you belong to him? Or by faith, do you trust in the last Adam and so belong to Christ? There is no other belonging. You're either with one or the other. And so a powerful image is introduced by Paul to describe the solidarity of Christian believers with Jesus Christ himself. You see it there in our passage in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because we are talking about new things and firsts, Paul says that Jesus Christ is the aparche, the aparche, the, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died having believed in Jesus Christ. So in other words, Jesus himself is the first of a coming harvest. He is the first evidence of future abundance. The term was used in the writing of Moses, and I don't have time, I'm kind of pressed for time, but I don't have time to go through the Pentateuch, all the references where this term, the first fruits, was used to describe grain offerings given in sacrifice or, or animal offerings given in sacrifice. And these sacrifices that were given represented the whole flock. They represented the whole. They didn't just subsist in themselves, but they were representative of it all. Richard Gaffin, Westminster Seminary theologian, he said this, The point to these sacrifices is that they are not offered up for their own sake, as it were, but as representative of the total harvest, the entire flock, and so forth. The whole has been given to God. Therefore, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest, the initial portion of the whole. His, re- his re- resurrection is the representative beginning of the resurrection of believers. And so then the main idea, and that's the end, end of the quote, the main idea of Christ's resurrection as the first fruits is unity. Unity. It's a term of unity, of union, of an inseparable bond. The connection is so close that, that Richard Gaffin says, we shouldn't view the resurrections really as, as two events, but we can almost say they are two episodes of the same event. That's what it means for Christ to be the first fruits of the resurrection. It is his own first of two episodes in the same event, the same resurrection. So, we've been singing about it. Being together with 
Christ. Being in Christ. It is all through Christ. And it is then to draw a direct line, as it were, from Jesus' own experience of resurrection. Think about that. His own experience of resurrection to us today, our life today, and then a direct line to our experience of resurrection in the future. It is all tied directly together. Christ's experience and what will be our experience. Now when Paul contrasts Jesus with Adam, this emphasis on unity is at the forefront. So you see it there in verse 21. For as by a man came death. And of course this refers, as you know, Genesis chapter 3, where it says, for example, in the culmination of the consequences of this death, God tells Adam, Genesis 3, 19, to dust you shall return. To dust. So death, decay, rot, disintegration, worm food, like that's, that's where you're going. That is all of that in a promise, or we could say the curse or a warning that is given to Adam. And Adam, in his role as this federal head, the federal head of the whole human race, he, all of us in Adam, because of him, we're all going to be worm food. Right? It's not something we want to think about, right? The New England Primer from 1697, it was, a, it was a little workbook that they used to teach children in Puritan New England. They'd teach their ABCs through this little booklet, and they would also teach biblical truth as they taught. And, and so in teaching about the letter A, the New England Primer says, In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And you can remember that. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. As by a man came death, Paul tells us. Um, Just as an aside, just because I wanted to share it, when they taught the letter F, it said, the idle fool is whipped at school. (laughs) So maybe we've got to bring that back. I don't know. I just like that one. But by contrast to this fallen man, Adam, and in Adam's fall, we sinned all, all of us. In contrast to this fallen man is then another man. The last man. Another head of a new race. A new people. He says, For as by a man came death, well, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And don't get confused there thinking that because Jesus rose from the dead, then everybody's going to be risen from the dead and go to heaven. But the condition is, are you in Christ? 
If you are in Adam, you die, and there is then no hope. If you are in Christ, you shall be. It's a promise. All of you who are in Christ, you shall be made alive. Now, verse 22 there, according to Gaffin, he speaks of it as a virtual one-sentence summary of Romans 5, 12 and following, where Paul says that he's going to basically expand on what he's going to do two years later when he writes to Romans. And I, I just, I don't have time, but I just encourage you to read through Romans chapter 5 this afternoon. But in verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And we just have to be very attentive here. Because all are in Adam, not all are in Christ. But being in Christ is the condition of being made alive. And he says, verse 23, thinking then about this resurrection, if Christ is the first fruits, he's first. Well, what comes after? Well, Paul says in verse 23, each in his own order. There's an orderliness to it. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So there's an order. There's an order. Christ has to go first, then those who belong to him. But the point is, this is the key thing, and this is what you need to be remembering, is that his rising guarantees ours. His rising guarantees ours. So as you think about the resurrection of Christ, it is the ground and guarantee for your future reality. The solidarity between the two, between you and Christ, it guarantees it. The order guarantees it. Christ guarantees it because in verse 23, you actually belong to Christ. It's as if as Christ is risen, He is pulling you up in His own resurrection and going to pull you to heaven. See, this sense, it's so so relevant for us because in all of us, all of society, everybody's looking for a place to belong. Everybody wants to belong to something or someone. They want to belong to a movement, as we're seeing happening down in Ottawa. People want to belong. But nothing, nothing compares to belonging to the living Christ. Nothing is Nothing, you, you can't imagine anything that would compare. No, no affiliation, no connection, no identity could be better than belonging to Christ. And so, you have this contrast between Adam and Christ, the first man and the last man. And Paul's going to remind his readers and remind us of the return of this living last man, Jesus. And when I think about it, when I think about Jesus coming back again, of course, you know, the Johnny Cash playlist kicks in. And I, and I think of his song, When the Man Comes Around. And, and you maybe know the song, you know the lyric. There's a man going around taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. And everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. 
And, and this, this is the bold threat which Paul is giving when he says, verse 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, of, the kingdom to God the Father. Notice what comes first. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. You see, at the end of all things, the last man will deliver the kingdom to his father. But there's something you've got to notice here. There's something near the end here. Something to be done before this handover. And we can almost see it as, what we call it, like a shift in policy. It's not really a change in policy because it's always been there, but there's, a, there's then a change between Jesus the King and all of his enemies. Because we know Jesus, he preached in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He preached and he exemplified it at the cross that he loved his enemies. He loved his enemies at the cross. He preached that. He, he, he loved sinners, enemies like you and me. He, he loved his enemies. He called his people, you and me, to love their enemies, us to do this, to, to, to our enemies even here, even loving them with this same kind of blood-washed love that Christ has given to us. But, but make no mistake, the enemies of Christ will not succeed or remain unchallenged nor unjudged. If you will not turn to Christ as he seeks to love his enemies, then you remain his enemy without any reconciling love between you. Jesus Christ will destroy his enemies. Matthew 24, 51 says that in the parable he describes how he will take the wicked servant and cut him in pieces and put him out with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is not negotiating. He's not letting People have their own way. He will destroy every rule and every authority and power. And so, verse 24, this then applies, for example, to the rule and authority and power of the state. Even as Josh Carey preached a few Sundays ago in Psalm 2, God laughs at them. He holds them in derision. He's going to destroy the rule and authority and power of sin. And this is Romans 5.21. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He reigns. And he will destroy the rule of, and authority and power of sin. He'll also destroy the rule and authority and power of the devil. 
Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet, where they were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is what's happening when the man comes around. Jesus must reign. He must. He reigns, and he continues to reign, and he must reign, verse 25. He, how long does he reign? Well, he reigns now, and he reigns not yet. He is, reigns in an inaugurated way without being consummated. But he reigns forever, and he is grinding down his enemies. He's crushing his enemies who refuse to embrace his undeserved offer of love and peace and reconciliation. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's not as if that once his enemies are under his feet, then he stops reigning. Rather, it's a consummation. It's a pinnacle. It's a climax. Jesus Christ then will have no enemies left. Except, what about the last enemy? What what about the last enemy? Not even Satan is the last enemy. Something even more opposed to life than even Satan himself needs to be defeated. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. Jesus will not negotiate with death. He will destroy death. Death is the last enemy. And as we understand what will happen, Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 to 15, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, I'm in Revelation 20, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, this last man, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, he does not hand over his kingdom to his Father in some state of turmoil, in some state of civil war. No. He hands it over to his Father in perfect peace. Perfect peace because the last enemy to be destroyed is death perfect peace. And this shows you then the priority of the incarnate Son. 
His priority is to fulfill the duties of his heavenly Father, to obey his Father's will according to his risen, resurrected human glory, saying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Of course, as he said in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. In verses 27 to 28, we're shown that all things then are placed under under the dominion or the lordship of God. Even verse 28, it indicates that the Son, the Son, in verse 28, you read, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Verse 28 indicates that the Son... By his incarnation, which we've been talking about as the last Adam throughout the whole context here, by his obedience to the point of death, Philippians 2, even death on the cross, by his exaltation and his name that is above every name, even as this incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, is exalted above all, he does so for the glory of God the Father. He does it for him. And in this way, God may be all in all. The Father is all. The Son, according to the divine nature, is all. The Spirit is all. The one true triune God is all in all. John Calvin said, he said, we acknowledge it is true. God as the ruler but it is in the face of the man Christ. So we, so we acknowledge God as ruler, but it is in the face of the man Christ. But Christ will then restore the kingdom which he's received that we may cleave wholly to God. Calvin continues, he says, Nor will he in this way resign the kingdom, but will transfer it in a manner from his humanity to his glorious divinity because a way of approach will then be opened up from which our infirmity now keeps us back. Thus, and this Calvin continues, thus then Christ will be subjected to the Father because the veil being then removed, we shall openly behold God reigning in majesty and Christ's humanity will then no longer be interposed to keep us back from this closer view of God. I mean, it's holy ground. Holy ground to think of the incarnate Son delivering over the kingdom to His Father. Of course, the interplay of this relationship is seen in John 10 when the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, can speak in reference to His humanity or to His divinity at will. He says, speaking of his sheep in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You see, the deity of Jesus giving eternal life and having the same unified essence as the Father. But also we see that the Father is greater in respect to the human nature of Christ 
and Jesus fulfills the divine will with all the stewardship of his submissive human nature. See, the cash value is, as we kind of think about these holy things, the cash value is that God is all in all. God is life. God is all. And that is what we come away seeing is the majesty of God, even as the last enemy is destroyed. But then Paul, Paul goes and he, and he addresses then our current battle, his current battle, but it's also ours. And he does a bit of this apophatic theology we talked about the other time, this negative theology. And Paul says then, as he goes on, he's going to argue that he's faced all kinds of calamities, all kinds of dangers. We're told that he was fighting fighting with beasts at Ephesus there. You see it in verse 32. He's got all these troubles. Was he thrown to the lions in the arena? Well, no, I think so. I think he's just talking about his beastly opposition from false teachers and persecutors. But in all of this current battle that Paul has faced, he he has to ask himself that question. If the dead, and this is a question for you, if the dead aren't raised... Why bother? Why bother? You know, it, it's, it's a question to think about. Why bother? He quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah twenty two thirteen. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Like, why bother? Why bother doing anything? Um, why, bother, why bother trying? Why, why protest? Why have a baby? Why get married? Why get a job? Why do anything? Why go to church? Why bother if the dead are not raised? We're all, we all face that temptation. We think it's all meaningless. But then you're acting functionally as if Christ is not risen. See, in his current battle and in ours, belief in the resurrection from the dead is the ultimate motivator. It's the ultimate motivator. It motivates us to fulfill our calling, to fulfill and take dominion, and to take charge, and to move forward. The Corinthians were in danger of missing this. They're they're in danger of being influenced by all the drunkards and the gluttons and the party people in Corinth. Paul says they need to sober up. They need to sober up. They need to drop these party friends. He quotes Menander, who is a pagan Greek comedian. Bad company ruins good morals. That's not just something your parents tell you kids, that bad friends ruin good morals, but it goes back to ancient Greece. Paul quotes that. But Paul can even say, he can even say in verse 34, that they need to stop sinning. Do not go on sinning. He he says it, this assumption that you can, that you can stop if you have Christ, that you can stop sinning, not negotiating with sin, but you can stop. And he recognizes some have no knowledge of God. I say this to to your shame, recognizing that there are these people 
who don't know the Lord and might even be infiltrating the church and corrupting faithful believers. But Paul makes a motivational appeal that makes no sense without the resurrection. And the motivational appeal is in verse 29, which is one of the harder verses in 1 Corinthians and in the Bible. You read it there. Otherwise, why, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Should be able to get email on this one. It's a difficult one. It's, it's, it's often misinterpreted. Uh, Mormons teach, they teach that that you ought to be baptized to save dead relatives, and so you can go to a Mormon temple. I've been, I've been in one of the big, this big uh, tank. It's massive. Uh, it's supposed to be like the the basin in Solomon's temple, and then you get baptized there for dead relatives. Many have said, many scholars have wondered that the Corinthians were baptizing people to to deliver their their dead loved ones, kind of representatively, uh, following some pagan practices. But then other scholars will say, actually, those pagan practices were later than Paul's letter. But then I think if you actually look at understanding the, in the original, Paul is actually simply making a motivational appeal. As one commentator put it, the appeal is this, namely that quote, the death of Christians leads to the conversion of survivors who in the first instance, for the sake of the dead, their beloved dead, and the hope of reunion, in the hope of reunion, they turn to Christ. They're hoping to be reunited with lost loved ones and so they turn to Christ. The same commentator states that, quote, the hope of future blessedness, allying itself with family affections and friendship, was one of the most powerful factors in the early spread of Christianity. Just the thought that my loved one, my, my grandmother, my wife, well, well they're died, and if we believe the resurrection, they have gone to heaven, that they'll, I'll see them again on the last day. That's a motivator for me to believe and to be saved. This isn't the Roman Catholic Church's teaching. The saints do not intercede, but they do testify. Hebrews 12.1 says they are, in fact, a great cloud of witnesses. So our glorious dead, we could say, the glorious Christian dead, the dead saints are not mediators but they are motivators. They are motivators. And as Jesus put it in Matthew 22, dealing with the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead, Jesus said in Matthew 22:31, he said, "As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God?" Verse 32, "I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob." He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he's saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and have new life. And God is the God of the living. It is an amazing thing, and it's easier for us to get dull to the astonishment that Christ is risen. And that all who die in Christ are alive in Him. They're, they're living. They're, they're in the resurrection. It, it is those, those people alive. They, they'll be bumped into. You'll bump into them. You'll, you'll have a chuckle. You'll, you'll be greeted warmly. You'll, you'll hang out together because of the physicality of the glorious resurrection, this glorified bodies forever in heaven. To be honest, I was reminded of it yesterday morning. A bunch of you were at the outdoor hockey game, and there was this physicality to it, especially when Derek Rao kind of crushes me on the boards. But there was a physicality to it and, and a delight and it was fun. And it was a foretaste of heaven even as Zechariah 8, 5 tells us in the streets of heaven there would be boys and girls playing. Is that how, is that, is that how you think of how it all ends? Boys and girls playing. The physicality of glorified bodies, of being with loved ones together, you will see in the resurrection, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will see your dead loved ones. And you will even see loved ones that you've never met before. The saints of old, the heroes, your people, people related to, people not. You'll see the triumph of Christ in the destruction of the enemies. And you'll see most of all, you'll see most of all this transference of the messianic kingdom of the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, to His Father. And you will behold God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God will be yours to enjoy unhindered with unending Joy forever and ever. Those are the facts. The facts. And the first fruits of the resurrection harvest guarantees it all. Christ's risenness guarantees ours, if you believe. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I ask that you would lift our eyes to see you and your great glory. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name.